So now to introduce our speaker, Norman Farb. Very fortunate to have Norman here to speak with us this evening. Norman is a uh, associate professor at the University of Toronto in Mississauga in Canada. His research is focused on social and affective neuroscience and particularly the neuroscience of human identity and emotion. And he has a special interest in mindfulness meditation and its effects from a neuroscience perspective. He has published some of the most influential papers in the field about mindfulness, meditation, emotion regulation, and the brain. So we're very lucky to have him here with us tonight. His talk is titled, Understanding the Challenging Dynamics of Mindfulness Practice. So over to you, Norm. Wonderful, thank you so much, Ruth. And, and thank you so much, everyone, for attending. Um, at the risk of cutting into my own time, I thought it's uh, just so lovely to have so many people interested in the nature of the mind and, and interested in a sort of um, hopeful, I guess, way, otherwise <laughs> all I practice. So maybe we could just take a minute just to kind of share this virtual space together, um, sort of impromptu, but I feel like it would, it would help me get through the talk and be clear. So just do it for me then if, is the invitation, but maybe for yourself too, that we can just take a moment to just see what we can be grateful for about being able to all be here to, right now in this moment. Just whatever is there, even if nothing's there, that's okay. But just checking in, is, is there any room for a real sincere feeling of, of gratitude and appreciation? Because I, I'm feeling that right now and I just wanna soak it in for a moment. So at least at the for the first minute of my presentation, there's a chance for feeling like everything's okay, nothing's too confusing, hopefully, um, and we'll at least start on a high note before I jump into the conceptual realm. Okay, so I'm going to now share my screen, which is the formal beginning of the conceptual stuff. And uh, today, um, it's my uh, privilege to discuss how the research that myself and my colleagues have been doing over and coming up on uh, two decades now um, can help us both identify but then also unpack some of the real uh, puzzles um, that show up as we delve deeper into mindfulness practice. So once we move past that broad definition of just engaging in non-judgmental present-centered awareness, um, a lot of contradictions or questions start to emerge. And so I'm hoping just in the next 40 minutes or so to take us through three or four of those seeming uh, seemingly contradictory um, pieces of advice or, or teaching instructions or ideas around how mindfulness works and shed my own little uh, flashlight um, uh, from a scientific perspective about how we can understand um, and access uh, empowering and um, uh, encouraging kind of meaning or interpretation for some of these contradictions. So enough prologue, let's just dive right in. Um, starts from this question really of what we're trying to accomplish and then how the instructions help us get there. Um, and while some people may be meditating to find liberation from the dependent uh, origination, the causal chain in which we are all found, uh, find ourselves, many of us are meditating from far more pragmatic reasons. Um, we're trying to kind of hold on to some semblance of function amidst a world that seems to be feeding us perpetual uh, signs of threat, um, of inadequacy, 
and of our, our lack of safety and the, the potential hopelessness of the future, right? So um, we're just trying to ride out these, these waves um, that come at us and uh, in more ways than one with the pandemic being an, an obvious and salient example um, that's still playing out today. Uh, and so the challenge is not necessarily spiritual liberation for all of us, but it's not just like being okay when everything is fine either, right? So although Jack Cornfield had this wonderful title on one of his books, uh, Meditation Teacher Jack Cornfield of After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, that we have to get ready for the mundane uh, mundanities of everyday life. I think for many of us, the challenge these days is during the pandemic, in the face of all these threats, there's still laundry to do, right? That um, that we find ourselves at risk of languishing, falling into hopelessness, despondency, and, and burnout. Um, and I think a lot of this comes from the idea that we're constantly under tension. And it's, a, it's an understandable and valid tension between our feelings, which are telling us things are wrong and we need to get out of this situation. But if the situation is the whole state of the world um, and ourselves in it, um, maybe our minds are telling us, no, you just have to find a way to persevere and stay focused um, and stay engaged. And so there, there really is this tension of, of wanting to get away from it all and not really having it a way out. And then so having to come up uh, with the resources to just keep functioning despite having these feelings can be very, very taxing. And this state of being where we feel like we're constantly um, needing to muster up more resources to meet our demands uh, even though our, our feeling states may be telling us just to get away, um, is very well characterized uh, by current models of stress, which date back now, um, coming up on almost a century of, of stress models in what's known as the general adaptation syndrome, which is after the initial upset, when a threat emerges, um, most of the time when an organism will do is find a way to try to compensate for that threat and be in this sort of high vigilance, tense state um, known as resistance. And we try to resist as long as we can, but all of our resources are finite. And the risk that the deeper threat looming on the horizon is eventually our resources will be inadequate to meet the challenge. We won't be able to do one more day of, of this, whatever this is. And that's when we hit the exhaustion phase. And that's when pathology emerges. That's when there's breakdown, depression, anxiety disorders, um, substances uh, takes over. Uh, suicidality and and uh, and also physical medical conditions like hypertension start to really um, rear their head, and so um, I think it's not a, a giant leap to look at you know the type of information we're getting at all the time and seeing that we've been stuck in this resistance phase for a long time and and maybe in a way that's been unprecedented in, in the, the past few generations at least where we've been graced with relatively benign problems like just the laundry, right? <laughs> dealing with more than just the laundry um, these days. But every every generation, every life um, has these uh, challenges that we have to overcome. Um, and what's, I think, particularly difficult these days is that there's no end in sight to a lot of these, these challenges. So the threat of exhaustion becomes more and more uh, real and, and salient, um, which becomes another threat indicator. Right? I'm okay for now, but I don't know how long this can last? How long is this going to last? What if this is how it is from now on? And for those of us here who weren't sort of extorted to, extorted to be here as part of my undergraduate of normal psych class, so I'm sure you all came for, for interest sake as well, um, there's this idea that mindfulness is this kind of puzzle that if we can just put the pieces together, it's going to help us somehow navigate um, being in this place of resistance, maybe it helps us resist longer, maybe it helps us escape this whole cycle somehow. So we're no longer 
on the road to burnout. We're no longer just languishing until we fade away. And maybe there's something more to life than always being stuck in this mode. So that's a really cool um, hook to get people into mindfulness or to keep practicing if they're already into it. Uh, but once you start relying on mindfulness as a vehicle for your, if not spiritual salvation, at least uh, ability to cope with, with daily life, we now run into the issue of understanding exactly how to practice in a way that will return that goal, right? That will actually give us that sense of resilience or maybe even a sense of spaciousness and freedom. And that's where the contradictions that might lead us to think we're practicing right, but maybe reveal that we might not be practicing uh, as skillfully or efficiently as we could be, start to rear their head. So I want to sort of take us through in a somewhat facetious way, um, a few of these challenges and, and how research may help us understand uh, that response a bit better. So here we have our, our stressed out person. Uh, so any one of us on a, on a given day, let's say you can just see the stress <laughs> seething out of our uh, person uh, right here and they uh, have heard about mindfulness. So they try to find some access point to learning mindfulness, whether it's a uh, written recording, a live teacher, which is seems increasingly rare these days or an app, which seems increasingly popular. And so they call out for support from a mindfulness teacher and they find some resource, a mindfulness teacher emerges from the ether and they say, help me mindfulness teacher. And the teacher says, okay, I can help you. I'm gonna give you just a few simple instructions. All you have to do is follow these instructions and you'll be right as rain. So what's the first step? Well, the first step I'm gonna tell you is you just need to learn to focus without judgment, right? You need to be really careful that you monitor yourself and you focus on something off in your breath or something in your body, but at the same time that you're being really careful to maintain your focus, don't judge yourself at all. And so for the person who's trying, already feeling kind of overwhelmed and now is trying to figure out how to follow this instruction, this can actually be a source of, of confusion. How in the world can you monitor yourself and judge whether you're doing things correctly while at the same time not judging, right? There's this kind of double um, speak that seems to be potentially occurring. And so to try to understand maybe the nuance in which a statement like this makes sense, um, and, and at least from the sort of scientific perspective, and I'm keenly aware that as some advanced practitioners in the audience, maybe this is not uh, an issue for you, but for me in, in my sort of initial um, meanderings into my own practice and trying to understand the concepts behind it, it has been, um, we might be able to turn towards one of the most basic practices, which is bringing our awareness and our attention uh, to the breath. And so in my lab, I've really been trying to focus on developing scientific models for studying um, attention to the breath, breath monitoring, and how that plays out in the brain as a relatively understudied aspect of sensory processing and then how that relates to well-being. So what I've done in one study, and we're just uh, getting ready to try to publish this data now, so you're lucky you get it before it ever even reaches peer review, which is maybe a double-edged sword, is we put people in the scanner and we ask what happens when we either ask them to report using key presses on a, a circle on a screen that's pulsing out and in. So press a button, one button as it gets bigger and another button as it gets smaller. Um, or we ask them to report on their own breathing. So focus on your breathing and tell me when you're inhaling and when you're exhaling. And this has nice scientific characteristics because we can see that people are pressing the buttons correctly. We have a little belt on their, around their chest so we can see what the objective breathing signal is and we know what the circle is doing because we programmed it. And we can compare just what does it mean to turn attention inwards towards the breath? And is this actually different than just focusing on the external worlds? And maybe in, in unpacking what happens here, we'll kind of understand how you can have judgment-free, uh, judgment but still carefully curated focus. 
So the first thing we see when people pay attention to their breathing compared to paying attention to something on a screen is that the whole surface of the brain, this is like a top-down view of the brain, actually looks like it starts getting quieter. It becomes less active. It consumes less oxygen um, than the brain would normally consume when you're focusing on something out in the world. So actually, the first thing we see is not so much the presence of focus, but we actually see an absence, right? We see that people who are focusing on the breathing show less cortical activity than people, the same people when they're focusing on the circle as though there's a big break signal being applied. The whole brain seems like it quiets down. And this is even when controlling for changes in breathing rate. And we know that they're actively engaged because they're still pressing a button along with their in-breath and out-breath. So something really amazing seems to be happening that shuts down the brain, but that doesn't really mean focus, right? That just means the absence perhaps of judgment, also absence of other types of mental processes, um, which is already really fascinating. I don't think it's that well acknowledged. There aren't very many studies that control for task difficulty when people focus on their breathing, uh, which is part of what I'm gonna pitch to editors when we try to publish this work. Um, but we can ask this further question of like, well, is there a difference between someone who focuses on their breathing and has no feeling of like capacity or insight or stability or trust and someone who really endorses like, oh, this is a very meaningful value, valued and um, rich activity for me where I actually get a lot of information. And the way we try to establish those individual differences is using self-report questionnaires at this point, because we don't have an objective measurement of, you know, body awareness mastery or anything like that. So we use the Maya, the multidimensional assessment of interoceptive awareness, which asks questions around people's ability to notice changes in their body, but not just notice things, also to trust and feel like it's valuable to have this type of information. And we can ask the question, what differs in the brains of people who focus on their breathing, who have a lot of trust and value and confidence in their ability to go in versus the people who are much lower on that spectrum. So in technical terms, we can use the Maya scores as a covariate of the change in brain activity when people start turning their attention towards the breath. And what we see is, although there is this broad pattern of deactivation, the more someone reports high levels of comfort and capacity for engaging in internal awareness, the more we actually see a sparing of some brain regions from deactivating. So while the whole set is sort of becoming less activated and going into a quieter state, and maybe that involves freedom from judgment and freedom from other types of uh, cognition, we see that a certain pathway right along the anterior cingulate of the brain, right in this midline here, is actually spared from deactivating to the extent that someone has a higher Maya score. So this gray line that you may be able to just barely see here is showing no change between looking out and looking in. And the people who don't really show much change along this cingulate part of the brain are the people who are the most comfortable uh, with looking in, in terms of their self-report. And the people who don't endorse a lot of comfort, trust, value, or tendency to look inwards show a much bigger shutdown, even in this little strip here. And what is this strip doing? Well, this is the hub, uh, one of the hubs of the brain salience network, which is intrinsic uh, um, set of brain regions that are, are connected to each other that help us monitor and alert to things that are important. And so uh, noticing you made a mistake would activate the salience network. Noticing uh, something that has some emotional or motivational relevance would activate the salience network. So while the whole brain is going into a quieter state, there's still this preservation of the part of the brain that notices and reflects on experience that is being preserved while the rest of the brain is being quieter in people who profess some expertise or comfort in engaging in their internal sensation. And so here actually is the focus signal showing up. And so 
when we say focus without judgment, we are really saying two different things. And the thing is, because there's a bunch of different things happening in the brain at the same time, both these things can play out at once with a skillful sort of uh, um, engagement of attention, right? We can have both this pattern of cortical inhibition where we quiet everything down and can hear more subtle signals like the signals coming from inside our body when they're not distracted by all this external stuff or our, our thoughts and, and judgments. But at the same time, we can develop a skillfulness, and we know that mindfulness training can increase Maya scores, for instance, in being able to retain the ability to self-reflect. So you can quiet everything down and still have this ability for reflective um, attention, which can then be grounds for insight, perhaps. And so um, our poor hapless person starts practicing this way and realizing that they can still try to quiet things down well without quieting everything down and still retain that sort of awareness of what's going on. And they say, OK, quiet down to hear more, got it. And the teacher, in the perverse way that mindfulness teachers always push at the edge of, of your comfort level a little bit to push you to go further, says, okay, but you don't need, there's still more rules. My second principle is now that you're calming down, you can really see how upset you are. And again, the person says, wait, I thought I was calming down just so I could have like a calm awareness and be and have relief. But the teacher's saying, nah, that's not why you're calming down. You're calming down so you can really come into contact with how upset you are. And again, our poor participant is confused. You want me to calm down and enter this relaxed state so that I can discover bad stuff? And you see comments like this in mindfulness training, right? Like, let your mind become calm, watch the ripples subside, like the surface of a clear pond after the stone is thrown in you, then you will be able to see more deeply into the pond. And you're like, oh, how relaxing. But then the teacher says, but just because it's relaxing this time doesn't mean it's going to be relaxing next time. Remember, your experience might not always be pleasurable or relaxing. And after you calm things down, you may discover that there's actually really scary things happening below the surface. And if you're teaching MBSR or MBCT or an AP course, you'll often caution uh, students that they may be coming more deeply in contact with their suffering or their maladaptive conditioning, their habits, um, their lack of happiness, their lack of relatedness in, in the middle weeks of the course, at least. And though hopefully some of that will resolve for the better by the end of the course. And so how in the world are we asking people to calm down just so they can become more engaged with negative emotion, with upset? And why do we think that that's skillful? Well, if we're thinking about things from this perspective of general adaptation to stress, that we're in this kind of resistance phase, what that resistance phase means is acting like things are okay, even when things aren't okay. And so in a way, what we're doing is masking, and we see this definitely in animals and prize fighters alike, uh, or professional athletes, that showing weakness is evolutionarily like very dangerous. And so we need to kind of act like things are fine until the point of total breakdown. But what that might paradoxically lead to is an inability to really deal with the fact that things aren't fine before the point of breakdown. And so um, we can ask from this kind of neuroscience perspective, is there any evidence to support this theory, right? Like how does being in this period of resistance get us kind of stuck into some really unpleasant situation as opposed to helping us resolve our stressors and finding a way uh, through them or to, to deal with them more adaptively. And so again, we'll put people in the scanner in this time and a series of studies will uh, try to stress them out a little bit by making them feel sad. And we'll show um, really sad film clips often, nothing violent or gory, but themes of loss. Uh, the 80s is a really rich period for parents who uh, are estranged or dealing with uh, their children having to say goodbye because of a terminal uh, illness, uh, like in terms of endearment or after winning a prize fight in the champ. Um, and we'll compare these sort of emotionally evocative, sadness-inducing film clips uh, that are viewed in the scanner to periods of time when people are watching fairly mundane uh, video clips of like home and gardening television. 
and we'll try to ask what happens in people's brains when we expose them to stresses, stressors, emotional stressors, to feelings of sadness. We know reliably we can make people feel sad when they watch these clips. And how do differences in how people respond to sadness predict well-being or some sort of dysfunction? And so um, although there's a lot of conceptual and self-referential stuff that spins up in response to seeing sad film clips and you'd want to relate it to your own life and is this me or like me or would I have reacted the same way in that situation, one thing we have found consistently that we never expected to find was in response to an emotional stressor, sensory processing in the brain becomes inhibited. And we've, uh, I'll show you a couple of studies where we've shown this, including the first time we reported it back in 2010, that both feelings from the surface of the body in the somatosensory cortex and feelings of what's happening inside the body in the um, posterior and middle insula deactivate. They become less active as we report feeling more sad. So sadness in, in a, a Western human adult in one of our studies um, isn't this outpouring of emotion that's completely overwhelming our senses. It's actually a withdrawal from sensation. And the reason why I think this is more important than all the self-referential and conceptual stuff that's also happening is when we look at all the changes in the brain that occur in response to sadness, the changes that are most associated with broad well-being, so we can use uh, symptom inventories like a depression scale and anxiety scale, the, the changes that are most associated with our broad well-being are occurring in relation to the inhibition of sensation in response to stress. And so we can see almost this idea that people are moving away uh, in a maybe not fully conscious or intentional way, but nevertheless moving away from sensation to move back to a state where things are at least controllable, even if they're somewhat negative. Like I'll handle my sadness conceptually, thank you very much. I don't want to feel this anymore. So we can see, for instance, that the more someone goes below no reaction, which is the dotted line here in response to seeing the sad film clips downwards into inhibition, the more depressed they say they are, even though they might have equivalent momentary sadness ratings as someone who's not depressed. So I don't think this is well communicated culturally yet. And I mean, more labs and more studies will be needed to really drive this home. And I'll show you one more in just a second. But it's this really important principle that when we are faced with stress, the way that a lot of people respond to their stress is not by feeling totally overwhelmed by the feeling of stress. The, the reaction, the regulation of stress involves shutting down sensation to protect ourselves from getting even more of this threatening or challenging feeling coming in, again, in this kind of resistance mode. And we can see this not just in stressed people in our community. We did a very large study that we're, st we're still publishing from uh, where my, uh, my primary collaborator is Indel Siegel, who helped develop mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, where we looked at people who have a history of depression, recurrent depression in the past. And we again would expose them to these sad film clips. And what we see is that being exposed to these sad film clips again in a much larger sample, this is now 85 people scanned twice, so 170 scans, um, show deactivation in all these blue regions in panel A, which are sensory regions of the brain predominantly, the visual cortex, surface of the body, what's inside of the body, and all of this evaluative conceptual stuff gets more activated. Um, the more past episodes of depression a person has, the more you see the insula and somatosensory cortex shut down in response to stress, the emotional stressor. And the more residual symptoms they still have from their past episode of depressions, so they're not completely feeling no as normal as everyone else, they still have some lingering symptoms. Again, those residual symptoms independently predict even more sensory shutdown. Um, so the legacy of having been depressed in the past and having 
have this have, having had this resistance to exhaustion pattern is a sensory shutdown in response to an emotional stressor. And when we then followed people for approximately two years, just under two years after doing these scans to see who became depressed again or not, we see not only is it a scar of the past, it's predictive of future relapse. So blocking out sensory and motor activity, so the supplementary motor area here in the somatosensory cortex and even visual activity while watching these films happens for everyone, regardless of whether they relapse or not. So you can see every bar here in panel B is below the gray lines. Everyone blocks out a little bit of sensory processing, but the people who go on to relapse into a full episode of depression do it much more. And in fact, if you split the 85 participants in the study between those who are in the top half of blocking out sensation versus those who don't show as much inhibition, the people who don't inhibit as much, only about 10% of that group relapse in depression over the two years, whereas close to 40% of the people who block out a lot end up relapsing two years later. And this is despite the fact that everyone entering the study is no longer depressed and is clinically deemed to have been recovered uh, from their past episode of depression. So it becomes a bit of a, a warning flag that this, that not only is it our tendency to block out stress, but that we do it to different degrees. And that the more we block out sensory input in the face of a stressor, the more we're setting us up, ourselves up for breakdown in the future. And this is really often expressed in, in cognitive theories of depression where you see this pattern of experiential avoidance or suppression of emotion or avoidance of, of or trying to use thoughts to get away from emotion is creating a downward spiral that makes you feel worse and worse. And now your only story you have access to is the story about dealing with your depression and, and this problem of your mood. And at the same time, you're no longer taking in new information that could challenge that narrative. And so there's this kind of irony there, right? That we like gird ourselves in protection from feeling, right? Um, but then ironically, the way we've armored ourselves against feeling actually makes us more vulnerable uh, to breakdown in the future. Right, so this is just uh, an article from the Oatmeal, a satirical uh, website on, uh, on definitions of irony. But it, it's as though we're doing that. We have good intentions, right? It's not like we're purposely or perversely trying to do something that's bad for ourselves. We're just trying to get away from the bad feelings. But by doing that in an almost more and more automatic way, we're now stopping any possibility of new information coming in that challenges the story of our upset, right? Now we just have the concept of being upset with nothing to challenge it. We're stuck in this implication of being uh, upset, of being in a hopeless or dangerous world. Um, and we're not open to that story being changed because the way change occurs, right? The alternative to just blocking out threat into resolving threat is to let change in. And the way change comes in is, is a big project for our brains. That's why a lot of our brains, especially the back halves of our brains are dedicated towards sensory processing. And so when mindfulness uh, endorses getting kind of quiet enough to let sensation in, um, there's a reason for this because this is the way that we can actually change the dis, uh, debilitating or dysphoric interpretations of the moment right, by letting new information in. And in fact, when we look in the scan studies, for instance, of uh, people in the community who are depressed as they're inhibiting sensation. We see that a cohort of people who've completed mindfulness-based stress reduction um, show relatively less deactivation. They're the blue dots in this graph compared to the people who are waitlisted to do mindfulness. They're still interested in it, but haven't actually done the practice. So they still have all kinds of narrative evaluation, self-reference happening, but they're no longer blocking out sensation. They can have narratives that are still informed and updated by the sensory processing that's always occurring. 
in the depression relapse context, we actually don't see the ability to reverse sensory inhibition. It feels like it's a scar that's too deep for an eight-week course to address. But we do see some changes related to therapy, in this case, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or uh, wellness-oriented cognitive therapy that doesn't involve meditation even. And what we see changing there is actually um, an area of the prefrontal cortex that's involved in attentional control uh, stops activating as much in people who don't relapse after they do therapy, whereas people who go on to relapse still show a stronger, the red bar here, activation to sad film clips in this prefrontal region. And what we show through connectivity analyses that I'll, I'll spare you the gory details of with now, but could talk about in question and answer, is that these prefrontal regions, as they activate in response to sadness, are actually inhibiting or they're negatively correlated with activity in sensory regions. So although the scar of having an almost prepotent inhibition of sensory processing in people with a history of depression may remain after an eight-week course, we can at least stop throwing fuel on the inhibitory fire, as it were, uh, with a bit of training. And maybe that becomes an access point to slowly resolving these long-standing conditioned uh, avoidance patterns that are showing up in remitted depressed people in a, in a way that's less plastic than in, in a community sample. Let's say. So one way to make sense of calm down so you can see your upset is that seeing your upset is not actually the final phase, right? If what we're actually trying to see after sensory provocation, after coming in contact with a negative emotion, um, is actually a pattern of conditioned aversion, right? Of trying to escape the negative experience that can lead us lead us to at least at the least feel kind of numb and stuck and maybe at more extreme cases to fully dissociate from re reality and experience pathology that way. If we can find a way to do that skillfully when we're calm, we're not piling on more fuel in the inhibitory fire, we might be able to unlock some insight into these habits. We may be able to take in sensation that's disconsonant uh, with, right, that, with our ne negative interpretations or appraisal of reality that reveals us that the world is much more than the narrative that we subscribe to, maybe literally <laughs> through social media. Um, and maybe there's an opportunity for new meanings to be founded that are empowering and not just about languishing, resistance, burnout. So calm down to see how upset you are is about striking a balance between having our conceptual knowledge of the world which we need to operate, um, but also being able to sort of dive in right, to below the surface and forage for other things that are helpful in understanding why we're stuck the way we are, and then also finding things that are new opportunities for insight and positive experiences that are not just about um, replaying the narrative and not letting any challenging or threatening information in. And I've shown in some of my earliest work that mindfulness training helps people toggle between these modes. You can play the role of explorer even in the face of stress, right? And uh, again, I, I think it's maybe a bit understated, so I want to make sure it's clear. It is not the common accepted view that what stress does is shut down sensory processing, even though we have some ideas of like tunnel vision when you're feeling really stressed and burnt out. Um, but to understand that that is maybe a, a natural or at least a highly almost universally conditioned state for many of us here in the secular West or not so secular West um, is really important to understand why opening up to sensation would be a tonic for that, a way of addressing or treating that tendency. And then mindfulness training maybe is helping us do that by getting into a calm enough state that we actually have some ability to figure out what we want to attend to and what we want to let in, as I tried to show with the breath monitoring um, study uh, just before. I know we've come very far and I go a bit further. So now this person doesn't have any lightning bolts on their head anymore. Uh, they're still a little bit stressed, but they say, okay, I've got it. I just have to become a sense master. Once I master being in the sensory state, 
then I'll feel much better, right? Uh, Quasi-guru and the mindfulness teacher comes back again and says, well, what you really need to master is a beginner's mind, right? And this idea that you're gonna become a master, mm, not that skillful. What you really need to do is get over this idea of mastery. And this creates again, its own problems because like, what am I, if I was practicing shooting a basketball and someone was like, just try to have the attitude of someone who doesn't know how to play basketball. I'd be like, that is not, what, why am I practicing? And so there's something kind of, again, seemingly contradictory of this idea that what you're actually trying to master is a kind of beginner's mind. And I think it, it plays against the intuitions of even uh, very, very accomplished contemporary scientists who are studying things like the role of body awareness and well-being. Uh, and I know implicit to that is this idea that I'm smarter than them all. That's not necessarily what I mean, but I just have a different perspective on it because I'm coming from more of a contemplative angle. Um, and so rather than just being confused, we can look at you know what is actually being instructed in mindfulness practice around taking on a big a beginner's mind and how can we understand this and what the right component is that we should be emphasizing when we engage in these sort of mindfulness practices? What's the main thing that we're really trying to cultivate in ourselves? So really traditional instruction. Uh, so some of the most basic core foundational instructions for mindfulness practices, like pay attention to your breath, just notice, notice when it's long. And when your breath is not long, when it's a faster breath, a shorter breath, notice when it's short, right? There's no indication here of, of mastering breath awareness in, in some kind of uh, I'm better than you sort of way. It's just like get used to noticing for yourself. And so underneath these instructions, there is some ambiguity, right? Like what exactly are we trying to cultivate? Well, one thing could be accuracy. And this is a very hot field when people study interoceptive awareness or awareness of what's happening in the body. Like, are you able to get it right? Can you count exactly how many heartbeats you're having? Can you tell exactly whether there's some barrier in your breathing tube or not, or how strong that barrier is. Um, these are the types of paradigms that are often employed uh, in contemporary, like cutting edge um, body awareness research, right? Are people accurate? And if we could be accurate, presumably that would be good for us. Um, but there's other things that kind of fall out of this sort of process, right? One is just like, how are we relating to this whole project, right? Are we confident? Like, do we feel good about this? This is kind of like, are we feeling like there's some, uh, comfort and capacity here subjectively, regardless of what the objective performance is like. And then a third kind of idea that's sort of come up is you can look at whether our confidence is being deployed um, in a skillful way. So are we the most confident at the times that are most accurate? In other words, is our comfort with the whole process of focusing on the breath contingent upon the fact that we're getting it right? Right. Are those kind of things correlated or accuracy in our confidence ratings? Um, or are we just confident regardless of how we're performing? Right, so awareness is, is, the, is how much uh, confidence predicts accuracy or vice versa. And so to test this, we came up with another one of those circle tasks. And uh, though we're going into um, later parts of the talk, I wanted to give you a chance to sort of participate. So I wanna show you two trials of the circle task. And all I'd like you to do in this task is I'm gonna make the circle pulse a few times. And I'd like you to breathe in and out with the circle if that's comfortable for you. And try to notice from your first breath to I think your sixth breath, is your breathing speeding up, slowing down, or staying the same? Hey, that's the, that's the invitation. You can try to do it if you want. Otherwise, just bear with me. Okay, I'm going to start it circling with an inhalation now. Okay, that was trial one. You can uh, 
I don't want to do a show of hands or anything like that, but I want you to note for yourself, like commit yourself to one of those three decisions. It's a forced choice, you know, three alternative forced choice. Did it slow down, stay the same, or speed up? Here we're going to try a second trial now. Same thing. Here you go. Okay, that was a second trial. Did it slow down, stay the same, or speed up? So at the risk of blowing out my internet technological abilities, can people put up their Zoom hand if they thought on the first trial they that the breath sped up? First trial, the very first one, did your breath speed up? Oh, I can see so many votes. It's working. The technology is working. Okay, using <laughs> all sorts of hand objects. Okay, so let's say a good chunk of people. All right, now try to Put down your hands if you can. And see, I know there's a little experiment in tech. Um, what if you thought the breath didn't change in the first trial? Put up your hand now. Or you can say, yeah, the X is a good way of doing it. Oh, yeah, I guess we could have done checks versus Xs. OK, so some people said no change. OK, um, and we can get the same kind of judgments for the, the second trial. Um, I'll just say anecdotally, because I think I'm going to maybe make a bit of a, an issue here. Um, a lot of people will report in the second trial that the breath hasn't changed very much. But in the first trial, most people will report that the breath has sped up, right? And you're gonna do, you would do many of these trials in the lab, right? So you can see a bunch of different things happening. Yeah, sorry for making you click a bunch of things and anxiety there. Um, and realizing in such a large group, maybe we won't, we won't formally tally the results. So let me show you um, how I designed these two trials with the power of PowerPoint. Hey, yeah, you can put that in your hands if they were up. I don't want your virtual arms to get tired. So in the first trial, um, I used super complex programming called PowerPoint animation. And I did three pulses at two seconds each. Uh, so that's about a four second breath. And then I did one and a half uh, second pulses um, for the second three trials. So all at once, your breathing speeds up. And when it changes all at once, even if it goes from two seconds per inhalation or exhalation to one and a half seconds, it's it's more noticeable, right? It's all, all at once, everything's went from slow to faster. In the second trial, it's very similar. We still go from two seconds to one and a half seconds, but now it's amortized in small changes over every pulse. And so it's more subtle, it happens gradually. And when we do it more subtly, what we can do is we can make uh, the change in breathing rate less salient to people, even though the net change at the end of the six pulses is the same amount of change. We can also just control how much we make the breathing speed up or slow down, like is it 20%, 30%, 60%, um, and play with it that way. So in doing this, what we can do is experimentally manipulate whether or not you're aware of your breathing changing. Um, and then we can ask really interesting questions on top of that. So how confident are you in your judgments? And then what is the relationship between your confidence and your accuracy, right? Like accuracy just being, did you correctly detect speed up, slow down, or no change? So we can show accuracy. And on the low salience trials, people are near chance levels, which is like a one in three guess. But on high salience trials, when it speeds up all at once, halfway through, they're much more accurate. And the further you make the breath change as a slowdown to the right or as a speed up to the left, zero means no change the more accurate people get, right? The bigger the change, the easier it is to detect. But when it's not salient, even a, like a 60% change in your breathing rate is really hard to detect. But the point here is we can establish quite a bit of variability 
um, in people's accuracy. And there's other things from the task that I won't necessarily have time to talk about today. Um, we can measure how confident people are after each rating, just in a, like a one to 10, how confident are you in that, that guess you just made? And that roughly follows the same kind of pattern, right? When it's more salient and it's a bigger change, people are more confident, but they don't line up exactly. They're not exactly the same scores. They can vary somewhat independently of each other. And then the final thing we can do is look at the correlation between awareness and accuracy. And that's what I mean by saying they're not exactly identical scores. People vary between no relationship to maybe like a pretty medium strong relationship in the correlation between their confidence and accuracy scores. Now we can get a score for each person for their accuracy, their confidence, and their awareness. And we can say which of these capacities, um, assuming they could be trainable, but even just in an individual differences way, which of these capacities is actually related to greater senses of trust, value, and comfort in your body? In other words, which of these capacities actually relates to the type of adaptive uh, um, interoceptive or embodied awareness um, that we're hoping is cultivated by mindfulness. And so we can use the Maya scores again as a proxy um, for that type of awareness. And uh, what we find, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is upsetting to uh, interoceptive researchers, but we've now done this many times. And I'm trying to do it many times because I know it's going to be a bit controversial when it's published, is that only your confidence on average, your average amount of confidence on the task is related to feeling it reports of comfort, value, and trust in your body. That's associated with less depression, less anxiety, greater sense of well-being and flourishing. Your objective accuracy, and even how much your confidence is reserved for the times you're accurate, your awareness, have no relationship, uh, and sometimes even a negative relationship, with um, your feelings of trust, comfort um, uh, in your body. In other words, these kind of Maya scores, the interoception awareness scores. We've now shown this across uh, three studies. One study had two different versions of the task, um, one person, three online. And so this whole project of worrying a lot about becoming more accurate than other people in detecting what's happening in your body or only being confident when you get that accuracy signal seems like that's not really the type of mastery um, that is associated with wellness. It might be really important for other types of things, um, like doing well in an experimental task or activating a certain part of the brain. But if the goal is to feel like, just better about yourself and more whole and more connected and trust, trusting of, of what's happening in your body and your feelings. Um, it's the confidence you bring to the enterprise, regardless of how accurate you are, that really matters, that sense of, of comfort. And if you think about who would be really um, happy just to be doing something and not actually expect to be good at it, that's almost a definition of like a beginner with a good attitude. Right? I start training and playing basketball. I, if I freak out at the fact that I can't shoot a free throw and get the ball in the hoop, right when I first start practicing, I'm not, it's not really going to be a good constructive attitude. Right? The beginner's mind is like, I want to feel confident in my ability to grow and learn, and I want to not care at all about how good I am right now because I'm just starting out. And that's the part of breath monitoring that actually is related to, to well-being, to feeling better, to feeling less, less distressed. So. Um, we're trying to strike a balance here between, yes, of course, we do need to have some accuracy and some awareness in our body, but also like what we're really looking for is this ability to hold the beginner's mind at the same time. And really the, the most important thing for the wellness outcome is while we're playing this game of picking up on the granularity and interesting like real sensory events that are happening to keep those sense gates open to not let our sensation shut down. The most important thing during that process is not that we get it right, but that we trust and feel confident in the process. So now, and I'm almost done. I promise we'll have a little bit of time for questions. 
the person says, okay, so what do you want me to do is sense without expectation, and then I'm gonna feel better, right? I'm feeling less bothered now, perfect. I, I think I've got a handle on things, I'm gonna be okay. Um, and really what this has let me do is feel a great sense of relief, I'm no longer bothered, and thanks for teaching me the three things you said you're gonna teach me. And of course, the mindfulness teacher can't help it, but say, well, actually, there's one more point. That if at the end of all this, you think that you've figured out how to gate and control your sensation and be confident about it so that you won't be bothered, you're missing the, the, the hidden fourth lesson, which is the whole point of all this is, is not to avoid being bothered. That's playing back into the, the whole um, cycle that got you in trouble in the first place of not wanting bad, have, have to feel bad and having to escape from bad feelings, right? There is this one more point that not being bothered isn't the point, right? And that the reason why we get stuck in suffering, right? The reason why we stay in these concepts that are hopeless or languishing or the road to burnout um, is be exactly because of this intention to think that we're going to make it somewhere where we're no longer bothered. And once we pass through this gate, now nothing will bother us anymore. And we see this um, when we look at how uh, a tip, an undergrad, for instance, a college student who has no exposure to mindfulness training responds to negative emotions, right? Um, we see that they that even at high levels of negative emotions, people see awareness as still something that they would endorse. And I think it's important for me to be aware of things. But the more people actually uh, feel bad, the less they are likely to report having high, high levels of acceptance, of being okay with it. And it's as though acceptance is a thing that happens when you get rid of all the negative emotions. And they're actually like opposite constructs. Not that acceptance and confidence and comfort um, and, and curiosity are things that you bring to negative emotion. They actually seem antithetical to each other in terms of how people see them working. This is from uh, hundreds of, of university students um, being sampled. Um, we wrote, published a paper on this kind of problem that shows that while experts agree that acceptance and awareness are supposed to work together, um, when you actually study how general population conceives of wise reasoning, for instance, or their ability to reappraise and find more positive meanings of events, awareness tends to lead down that path. But when people say they have high acceptance, what they mean is, no, I, I actually don't need to engage in any sort of problem solving or renegotiation of meaning. So acceptance becomes like an endpoint rather than a process. So when not being bothered is your long-term goal, it's actually a sign that you really haven't gotten um, the more advanced teaching. And the reason I say that is when you look at more long-term practitioners, but not just long-term practitioners, when you look at clinical samples, people who have suffered deeply and realize that they need to develop some sort of skillfulness to get out of suffering, you don't see this pattern anymore. Instead, you see that both acceptance and awareness um, tend to be really protective against, uh, against depression, but they actually work really well together. They don't work in an antithesis to each other. And um, the ability to stay open because you want to feel things so that you can respond to them, so you don't always just deal with things in the same way, um, that your goal at the end of this is actually to be bothered, but be to be bothered by the right things, right? Not to be bothered in the same stereotypical way with no solution, but to be bothered by the things that you maybe can address in your life so you can still take action in your life is perhaps this hidden um, fourth teaching, right? Fourth contradiction. And so when we feel the need to escape and stay focused and like they, they, they're tearing us apart, we need to find a way to let our feelings actually inform how we engage our conceptual machinery rather than have them always be in opposition to each other that, um, that we just stick with something that's not working and then try to suppress the feeling that it's not working, right? And trying to strike that sort of balance. 
it's that, you know, <laughs> in clip art terms, that we can actually have our feelings and intentions and conceptual reasoning walk hand in hand, that our awareness actually um, it serves the cultivation of an attitude that empowers us to keep taking action rather than just trying to tough it out and resist and ignore those feelings until breakdown occurs. So if I can leave you with a welcome mat of, of contradictions, um, we're trying to strike this balance between focus and but not having too much judgment, that we're trying to calm down enough so that we can actually engage with the things that would be too upsetting to see otherwise, that we can do it in a way that has a kind of beginner's confidence, uh, even though it might not be warranted by any particular um, superiority over other people in terms of our, our ability, and then to not do this to stop being bothered, but to become empowered by the things that bother us, rather than just try to find a place where nothing bothers us. If you can put all those things together, then that's a lot of contradictions to work through, and it feels like we're a little bit closer to this idea of right practice, the type of mindfulness that will be skillful, Maybe that helps us get from this place of upset to a place of, if not abject joy and pure bliss, at least into a place of hopefulness. So that's my sort of meandering through a few contradictions and how some of our, the neuroscience and, and behavioral research can speak to it. And I just want to thank you so much for your attention. I'll leave up these contradictions as, um, as, as a little uh, talking points. And I think I've left in a little bit of time, but not a full 15 minutes, but still some for question and answer. So thank you so much for your attention. Oh, I think now you're muted, Ruth. <laughs> Great, thank you. I have several questions here that have been uh, collected for me. So let me just pick out a couple that might be interesting for you to discuss. Um, one of them has to do with the, um, the letting in of feelings, sensations uh, versus dampening it down. And mm -hmm. the question says, how can we best handle the cognitive dissonance between wanting to allow feelings such as anxiety and the ingrained reactive inhibition of it. Uh, right. So I think it is, uh, and I've tried to stress that with a little, the little weight uh, analogy throughout. It, it's a bit of a balancing act, right? It's, it's sort of the analogy, uh, the analogy of titration. That if you really have the ability to realize that you will shut down protectively, and maybe sometimes that's skillful, but you also now have the ability to turn to sensation to open up and as a place of discovery. Um, it's about negotiating how much you can handle. Because if you feel like it's overwhelming, you're going to move into this resistance mode and the shutdown might be so strong it's not negotiable anymore. So I would say with things like anxiety, um, it's, it's about trying to um, allow the feelings to occur because the feelings could be changing from moment to moment um, and notice how that triggers thoughts that feed back in, into to feelings perhaps and that it, it does have this kind of conceptual uh, framework um, and trying to kind of see how certain types of thoughts feed back into the fears and other types of thoughts maybe don't. And you can kind of play with that. So on one hand, there's like this like self-improvement negotiation, let feelings inside. Um, but on the other side is it's also okay for it to be overwhelming sometimes and to decide like, you know, I can sort of walk these territories a little bit and I do understand that I have the ability to shut things down. And in the short term, I'm going to back away from that, right? So it's about kind of finding that sweet spot and to make that more concrete and not answer for too long. Like if we're teaching, you know, trauma-informed mindfulness practice, we would encourage people to find a degree of sensation that is not like the most highly conditioned aversive sensation. So if going into your chest is like a guaranteed panic attack and you're focusing on your breath, do the finger tapping instead, right? You can still have some engagement with your, or notice your shoulders moving where it's not as deeply conditioned. And as you feel a bit more comfortable with just awareness of the breath and that just in general doesn't trigger feelings of panic, maybe you can play with 
more intense sensations, the more deeply conditioned sensations, knowing that the long-term goal is to get to the point where you don't have to react to the sensation, right? Uh, you can figure out which sensations are, are really worth, worth responding to and which aren't, but it's a titration, right? It's a balance. That's why, that's why the contradiction is there is to create a boundary saying you're not just trying to go as far as you can in one direction, including letting sensation in. Great, thank you, that's really helpful. Um, uh, I think this is from earlier in the talk. The question is, was it only sadness that was inhibited in the brain or was it similar for other emotions? So we just haven't done um, neuroimaging studies where we provoke other emotions. When you show a sadness inducing film clip and you ask people like, do you feel anxious or worried or hopeless? Or you, know, you can think of all kinds of negative emotions, fearful. Um, you probably get some of that, but we were really trying to go for, for status because it is, one, it is a temporally extended um, emotion. It's not an immediate get away, the spider's about to bite me kind of feeling. It's the kind of thing you carry around with you for a while. So it fed nicely into a paradigm that would get us into sort of conceptual elaboration where sensation is often absent. It, it might be very different for people who you know are suffering a panic attack or anxiety, but the pattern of experiential avoidance automating um, the response to anxiety, for instance, and then leading to more avoidance, and then you never having a chance to extinguish the, the in inclination to avoid, um, that is still totally consistent with anxiety disorders or, or trauma-related disorders. So I would imagine we'd see similar principles, but we it's an empirical question, and we'd have to run a set of anxiety-provoking uh, stimuli, for instance. Um, and we do see some disorders, for instance, like OCD um, might involve not being able to gate out the sensory impact of events that lead to a compulsion, right? So it's it's any kind of extreme. Not being able to block it all could also be pathological and might be more of an explanation for anxiety disorders. It might not always be a lockdown of sensory avoidance. And, and I think for, for raising that potential that the mechanisms could be different, but I think that the point of balance is still um, where we're trying to get um, that letting in too much or not letting out in anything are both um, under are both sort of overreactions uh, to how we would norm, uh, ideally handle some of these stressors. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Norm. All right, maybe time for one more question. Um, um, breathing while following a target on the screen allows implicitly to map time to space. That is the expansion of the chest, for instance. Mm -hmm. Is there anything special in breath for this task, or is it related to sensations at the level of skin? Um, I'm not sure uh, if I totally get the question, but if the question is like, could this be coming from a whole bunch of different sensory modalities? Is there something special about the breath or a feeling inside the body? Um, you know, the depressive relapse stuff, the activation is actually strongest uh, in the somatosensory cortex that predicts future relapse, at least, which is more of a surface sensation. There's an argument that a lot of our internal sensation is actually playing out through receptors on the surface of the body. So for instance, heartbeat detection, you can knock out heartbeat detection by putting a topical analgesic on someone's chest. So it's actually, we feel our heart often as it thuds into the skin, not because of some internal receptor. So, so, so definitely the internal versus external, like it's a hard line. I don't believe in that. Whether even body versus other sensory modalities makes a difference. I'm starting to think it does because we see this big shutdown effect when you start to have permission to, to report on internal rather than external experience. I think there is something potentially freeing in terms of resources in the brain to go internal, but it, we're just at the very thin edge where you have like, oh, that's weird kind of finding, and it's going to take a lot more research to flesh that out. It might be that any sensation 
um, it, it would work. And, and obviously there's like auditory and, and visual practices that are very effective for some people. So I wouldn't wanna say it has to be definitely not just inside the body. It might even have to be the body, even though there's a lot of theory around that's where our, our emotional conditioning happens. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Norm. This has been a really interesting hour. Really lucky to have you here. You can see there's a lot of thanks going on in the chat. Um, so yes, thank you from all of us.